You're listening to Pass the Chipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 2 Today, we will explore the relationship between the ancestral indigenous communities and the staple ingredients upon which Mexican gastronomy is built, the surprising similarities between Baroque art and Baroque food, and what's new in Mexico's food scene. And let me tell you, it is as delicious as it is beautiful. Hello everybody, welcome to Pasta Chipotle, a delicious and thought-provoking bi-weekly show that will take in an exciting tour discovering the edible treasures of Mexico. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food historian, cook, and author. To find more information about this project, please go to pasdechipotle.com. Find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. Now, let's get started with the show. Like most people living or traveling abroad, many Mexicans feel nostalgic for their favorite traditional foods, and often is the taste of freshly made corn tortillas, salsas, tamales, pastries, and even the thought of eating fresh ripe fruit can bring a deep sigh. Ah, uh, trust me, I've been there. To understand why in Mexico some ingredients are considered sacred, in the literal sense, we might need to find out what the ancient indigenous cultures in pre-Columbian times ate, and why they did it. So let's rewind the clock and go back to the agricultural revolution of the Neolithic, which was a worldwide event that took place around 12,500 years ago and marked the transition for humans to live a nomadic life of hunting and gathering to a sedentary one by developing the first agricultural systems and specialized crop cultivation. Mexico was no exception to this event, and as it turns out, the first crops that were domesticated in this period powered the creation of mighty empires and were so important that they became part of the creation myths. Cultures like the Mayans and the Mexica, also known as Aztec, shared the belief that the gods created men out of corn dough or masa, as it is called in Spanish, mixed with blood. And that is why they regarded themselves as the children of corn. The sacred Mayan narratives contained in the Popol Vuh tell the genesis and cosmogony of this civilization, and the creation of mankind is an essential part of it. On a historical note, let me tell you that the Popol Vuh transcription took place in Guatemala, as this territory was part of Mesoamerica, the region comprehending Central and Southeast Mexico and Central America. So, it is fair to say that Guatemalans are corn brothers and sisters of Mexico. It is no exaggeration to say that most of the indigenous groups of Mexico have largely survived on a diet of corn, beans, tomatoes, chiles and squash, complemented with wild game and insects. For centuries, agricultural activities 
were at the center of their life, and it shaped technology, economy, social organization, and even religion. The central high plains of Mexico were for millennia the granary of the pre-Columbian world. The city-states that dominated these valleys based their economic power and political influence largely on the commerce of produce, with a simple but very effective method of cultivation. Combining corn, beans and tomatoes, the indigenous people created a micro-ecosystem that ensures the mutual survival of these plants. Corn canes serve as support for the tomatoes and beans to grow, while beans reintroduce large amounts of nitrogen back into the soil. This crop system is called milpa and is still used in many rural areas in Mexico. This ancient powerhouse of central Mexico eventually also had to sustain a much larger population after the conquest of the territory and the establishment of the Spanish colony. The pre-Columbian societies in Mexico were mainly organized in city-states ruled by military religious elites that worshipped a rather well-stocked pantheon of gods. The gods who commanded nature's forces were especially revered. For these cultures, farming was at the center of their daily routines. Keeping happy the gods and goddesses that made their crops thrive was indeed essential. Large temples were built to honor Tlaloc, the god of rain, Ehecatl, the god of wind, Tonantzin, the goddess of earth and fertility, Chicomecoatl, the goddess of corn, and Huitzilopochtli, the Mexica sun god. During the Spanish conquest of the Americas, Catholic religion became a tool of social and ideological control. A systematic destruction of pyramids and other religious sites and monuments was followed by the construction of churches and chapels that aimed to replace paganism with Christianity. So, during the colonization, the use of religion was key to help the Spanish get a quick control over the population, teach them Spanish, and through Christianism, create a new social structure which they could regulate. But the polytheist nature of the ancient religions forced the Spanish missionaries to use their own Christian pantheon to substitute the old gods with new worshipping deities. And we have numerous examples of the substitutions of gods and goddesses with saints with similar attributes. For example, San Isidro Labrador became the bearer of agricultural reigns. San Lázaro and San Martín de Porres were named protectors of farming animals. And many altars were built to worship Santa Inés to ensure generous harvests. It is curious that the callous imposition of Christianism during the Spanish colony didn't quite erase the ancient indigenous ceremonies that were performed during the harvest festivals. As you can see now, the intricate connections between food, agriculture and religious traditions are necessarily obvious to the eyes of the traveler. But in Mexico, there's still a deeply rooted and almost mystical connection between the ancestral crops and the traditional food we proudly prepare and share with the world. So, next time you eat a handmade warm tortilla, bear in mind that this bread was uh, pretty much the equivalent of the Holy Communion wafer way back in ancient Mexico. We will continue with the show after this brief message. I'm thrilled to finally announce 
The Lounge of Sabor. This is Mexican Food, a quarterly digital magazine dedicated to the exploration of Mexico's gastronomic heritage and traditions. The spring issue includes six full in-depth articles exploring the origins of Mexican traditional food, its staple ingredients and flavors that define it, and five delicious recipes to get you started into the delicious world of Mexican cooking. Go now to fazichipotle.com forward slash magazine to take a sneak peek inside this issue. Go to fazichipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food in a whole new different way. To have edible manifestations of artistic movements isn't necessarily an obvious consequence from art itself. Having considerations between fine art and food don't quite go hand in hand when busy families plan their weekly meals. Now, having said that, there's other types of food, such as modern molecular gastronomy, which might create almost impressionistic dishes with vibrant colored splatters full of texture, and also the dainty cubist-like presentations of new cookery. And what to say about Magnus Nielsen's and René Redzepi's sublimation of their surrounding landscapes that inspire their preparation and poetical presentation of their dishes? Yet I'm pretty sure I've never heard of neo-dada-inspired food, which is not to say might not exist in some obscure kitchen in a Parisian basement. The 17th century was a wonderful time to be an artist in the Western world, especially if you could communicate the message of opulence and power that the European monarchies and the Catholic Church wanted to portray, using architecture, music and art to present this message. The fantastically intricate style, full of drama, grandeur and exuberance, is known as Baroque, and it was precisely this aesthetic that captured the imagination of many architects who were commissioned by the Spanish monarchy to build grand cities across their many colonies in the Americas, including Mexico. It's very possible that neither Caravaggio, Michelangelo or Bach ever imagined that in the colonies of the New World, Baroque would take the shape of voluptuous and decadent dishes, prepared with elaborate techniques, an enormous amount of ingredients and breathtaking presentations worthy of any regal table. This, however, wasn't quite an accident. In order to be able to make such astonishing dishes, it was necessary for cooks to have access to many luxurious ingredients, and there were three aspects that helped conform the well-stocked Mexican colonial pantry. First, the almost unlimited availability of the native ingredients the territory had to offer. Second, the addition of Spanish ingredients of animal and vegetable origins that were introduced during the colonization. And thirdly, the vast amount of exotic spices, grains and ingredients from China, India, South Asia, the Middle East and Africa, such as tamarind, nutmeg, aniseed, cinnamon, roses, basil and sesame seeds, amongst many other ingredients that were imported to Mexico via the maritime merchant routes of the Pacific and the Atlantic. And it is no coincidence that all those fiery Indian curries owe so much to Mexican chiles, and also their creamy texture mainly given by rich seed pastes 
are very similar to Mexican colonial moles and pipianes, and the reason is that many of these dishes had a parallel development. The colonial maritime spice trade enabled the possibility for Mexico and other nations to make emblematic dishes so unique with a perfect balance of proteins, carbs, spices and vegetables. Let me introduce you to one of Mexico's national dishes that is the perfect example of Baroque food, chile en nogada, which was created in the city of Puebla, one of Mexico's most visited colonial metropolis. Chile nogada is a complex and elaborate dish. It has numerous ingredients and intense labor preparation, but it really pays off with the overwhelmingly complex and delicious layers of flavors and textures in every mouthful. This dish is a true joy to be experienced. Chile nogada consists of a roasted, seeded and peeled poblano chile of approximately 20 centimeters long and 10 centimeters wide, stuffed with a cooked mince with more than 13 ingredients, including plantain, pork, apples, pears, almonds, raisins and peaches, amongst many other ingredients, coated with a pillowy egg butter and pan fried, then is garnished with a thick and creamy white sauce made with ground fresh walnuts, goat's cheese, cream and sugar, and topped with pomegranate seeds and parsley. The sheer preparation of this dish requires a high level of skill and enough culinary experience to get the seasoning, textures and cooking point right. This is also a seasonal dish, traditionally only prepared in autumn, right during the harvest season of the ingredients and eating this dish is typically a highly anticipated family event. This is a dramatic, opulent and voluptuous dish, a creation that was a true reaction to its equally Baroque architectural surroundings. So, if you think you couldn't conceive an edible equivalent of a masterpiece by Velázquez or as lavish as Versailles' Hall of Mirrors, think again. We will continue with the final segment of the show after this message. I hope you've been enjoying Paz de Chipotle, a bi-weekly audible companion to the digital magazine Sabor. This is Mexican food. But to keep this exciting project alive and thriving, I need your support. Independent creators like myself bring diversity, empowerment and opportunities to enrich our global cultural exchange, which is why the support of audiences with a passion for knowledge and creativity like you is essential. You can support this podcast by making a monthly donation on Patreon. You can find the show's page at patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast. By helping the show grow, you will also get great rewards, such as access to exclusive posts, transcripts of the show, and even the chance to decide which topics would you like to hear in future episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast. Every donation makes a big difference. Go now to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast and be part of this delicious story. Mexico is lucky in having built a monumental culinary heritage, but it can also weigh down on the efforts of cooks and chefs who want to make their mark in a highly admired UNESCO-listed gastronomy. But it turns out 
that not all tacos have been fried and not all chiles have been roasted, there is still plenty of room for innovation and creativity. Our modern interconnected world offers amazing opportunities to inspire and be inspired by each other's imagination. And contemporary television and online productions have created a wide variety of programs and documentaries around food. But beyond the glossy cookery shows and competitions, there is a new generation of programs that focus more on the creative process, motivations and life experiences behind the cooks and chefs' creations that are redefining the world's food scene. Perhaps many of you have already enjoyed PBS's Mind of a Chef, featuring chefs and cooks such as David Chang, Gabrielle Hamilton and Magnus Nielsen, amongst others, and Chef's Table, produced by Netflix. The second season of Mind of a Chef features Mexican award-winning Enrique Olvera, owner and founder of Pujol, ranked the world's 17th best restaurant in 2013. In 2014, Olvera opened a second restaurant called Cosme, serving customers in New York. Fiden published his book Mexico Inside Out, featuring some of his signature dishes. And in 2016, Olvera welcomed contestants of the UK's edition of MasterChef into Pujol's kitchen. Enrique trained at the Culinary Institute of America and went on to develop his own career exploring cuisines until he came back to Mexico and opened Pujol back in 2000 with a whole new take on Mexican traditional food. What makes Enrique Olvera's case a huge milestone for Mexican cuisine is that he's fundamentally redefining the nation's conceptions about tradition and innovation as complementary forces rather than mutually exclusive dynamics. Let me share what Mexicans think of their own cuisine. There are three distinct types of food for us. The grand festive dishes, everyday home cooking, and overindulgent street food. The most important qualities that people expect from these three categories are generous portions, fresh and flavorful ingredients, and good seasoning. Refined presentations and premeditated theatricality aren't really essential but this doesn't mean that there isn't an etiquette and rules around the preparation and enjoyment of food. But fine dining in Mexico is not an experience that many aspire to have or even can afford. In a country where delicious food can be bought really cheaply and enjoyed in the most unassuming of busy urban corners, expensive menus, stiff etiquette and pomposity are almost an expensive annoyance that has little or nothing to do with the quality of the food. It is also fair to say that outside Mexico, very few people think about Mexican food as sophisticated and the type of food that you will enjoy in a fine dining restaurant. Many think it's delicious, but a bit messy and unrefined. Olvera's cuisine starts by paying tribute to the ingredients and traditional cooking methods through his creations. And he also gives his guests the opportunity to learn to appreciate this, which results in an unexpected learning experience. It took 13 years of hard work for Pujol to have international recognition and for Olvera to become the de facto leader of Mexico's food scene. But why aren't there many more like him? And why is it so hard for chefs to make a name for themselves in a food-centered culture like Mexico? 
it all goes back to Mexico's own learning curve about understanding that culinary tradition and innovation are two indivisible forces. Many Mexicans might shrug new culinary approaches by questioning, well, what's wrong about traditional food that needs to be reinvented? And this is exactly what Olvera has to challenge. He is not looking down at traditional food and simply beautifying it. He's not judging traditional dishes. He is actually using the vast gastronomic capital to create something new. Culinary innovation, in this case, is about the creation of new traditions. Olvera is really not antagonizing, but bringing a rather philosophical approach by questioning and demonstrating the possibility to pay homage to traditions by building upon them. And that is precisely why Olvera's work is so relevant and will carry on inspiring traditional cuisines all over the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pasa Chipotle, a bi-weekly show dedicated to the exploration of Mexico's delicious gastronomic traditions. Don't miss the next episode where we will talk about the stewardship of culinary traditions and how this knowledge is passed on. We will take a literary approach into the intimate world of a Mexican kitchen at the turn of the 19th century. And things will get hot when we discover that there are so many more chiles in life than just red or green. I would love to hear your thoughts about this show. Please get in touch via email or Twitter You can find the links and the contact details on the show's description. Support this show on Patreon. Patreon is the largest platform that connects creators with bright audiences like you. To find more information about the show and Sabor, this is Mexican food magazine, please go to pasdechipotle.com. That's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe, rate, and share this show. Goodbye from me, or as we say in Mexico, hasta la próxima, amigos.